Hi, I'm Rachel Abbott, and over the past 25 years, I've overcome disordered eating, and I've learned how to help others overcome their undesired eating behaviors too. In fact, I've created an entire health coaching practice that centers around empowering women to take control of their relationships with food. And here on the podcast, we discuss our favorite ways of doing just that. So if you'd like to feel empowered in the way you relate to food and learn about all different kinds of ways to do that, stick around. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for coming back. Today on the podcast, I'd like to talk to you guys about something um, that I have struggled with for a long time and that anybody who struggles with binge eating and overeating and really restricting any type of food issue probably struggles with the same thing as well. And that is obsessive thoughts about food. Now, I was recently introduced to a term that I um, had never heard before, and it's a way to describe these obsessive thoughts about food, and that is the term food noise. Um, and after I heard that term, I was like, uh, why have I not heard that before? That's such a good way to describe it. Um, so basically, these obsessive thoughts about food or this food noise um, it's just like you wake up thinking about food, you think about what you're going to eat throughout the day, you go to bed thinking about what you're going to eat the next day, you are you feel like you're taunted by food when you're whenever you're around it. It's just constant chatter in the back of your mind related to food. So, um, I'm creating a free mini course that I'll be posting on my website soon. It's called Stop Obsessing how to eliminate excessive thoughts about food so you can live a life free from dieting without the fear of overindulging. And um, while I was making the mini course or creating the slides for it, I felt inspired to share it on my podcast as well, just because I feel like people who might want to listen to the podcast probably would benefit from hearing something um, about this as well. So let's get into it. Um, Now, If your mind is constantly consumed with thoughts about food, whether those thoughts are related to restriction or anticipation, you are among the many who suffer from excessive food noise, right? Dealing with this excessive food noise can be exhausting, right? It requires an enormous amount of mental energy to focus on the obsessive thoughts, think through the logistics of what the thoughts are telling you, argue with the thoughts, and attempt to dismantle them, and eventually give in to the thoughts' demands. And that exhaustive cycle will lead you... Um, to feel like your entire day has been wasted just thinking about food. And of course, the resulting feelings of defeat, shame, and frustration are just as equally exhausting. I've found um, that most people, my younger self included, attempt to silence that noise by adhering to insanely restrictive diets. Basically, we just, you know, we convince ourselves that doing that will result in less food options for the noise to entertain, essentially. but that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> if you've ever tried to, to have a very restrictive diet to eliminate that food noise, you know that it absolutely doesn't work. And in fact, it typically leads to even louder food noise and consequently increased overeating and binge eating. Silly and possibly even counterintuitive. Uh, but hear me out. So what I found in my 25 plus years of dealing with excessive food noise is that the most effective way to quiet the noise is to think of it as unruly toddlers who require compassionate parenting to return to a state of calm. Now, I'm sure some of you might be thinking that you have no experience with toddlers or that you aren't a parent, so how could this possibly apply to you? And to that, I'm happy to say that this practice actually worked wonders for me um, before I ever became a parent. And if you think about it, 
what might you already know about toddlers, right? Um, even without having spent much time with them. Well, you probably know that toddlers are irrational little creatures. Um, you may also know that they are emotional, unpredictable, and their very existence makes you question all of your life choices, right? <laughs> so, of course, that last one might be a bit of a stretch if you aren't a parent of toddlers yourself, but you get what I mean. Now, the point is that toddlers are known for being impulsive, temperamental, unreasonable, and overall tiny, unstable little humans. And much like the food noise that often torments our minds, they're just unreliable, right? Um, so just like toddlers, our food noise requires a compassionate approach to tame. And because excessive food noise behaves much like unruly toddlers, I decided myself to refer to the noise as Rugrats. <laughs> now, this term came from that Nickelodeon show, Rugrats. Um, which I honestly cannot remember much about, but I do remember that there's this very bratty little girl named Angelica on it, and she is like the epitome of un an unruly toddler, right? So um, she's rude, loud, always wanting her way, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's why I refer to the food noise as rugrats in my own practice. And it's just like kind of a way to, to be silly about it, to be light about it, and not take it too seriously. Um, so, um, before we talk more specifically about how we can apply compassionate parenting skills to taming the food noise or rugrats, right? Um, I'd like to first just over, you know, have a overview of the four styles of parenting and you didn't know you were going to get a, a little parenting course, uh, in this podcast today, did you? But here we are. Um, okay. So if you're not familiar with the different types of parenting styles, and honestly, I believe most of us are, if you've completed like a high school level psychology course, right? Um, they, they always tell you about the four, you know, typical styles of parenting. There's the permissive style, the neglectful style, the authoritative style, and the authoritarian style. Um, the authoritative style is the one that I refer to as compassionate parenting because that style is founded on principles of compassion, and as I dive a little deeper into utilizing that parenting style to tame the rugrats, I'll explain that in greater detail. Um, but let's quickly review the four primary styles of parenting. So first, there's the permissive. Um, and permissive parents are very child-driven. You know, they don't really enforce rules. Um, they're just overly concerned with with what their child wants and needs and that kind of thing. Um, so... They are very responsive to their child's needs, but they aren't very demanding, meaning they don't have a high expectations or standards of behavior by which they hold their children accountable. Um, so one example of permissive parenting that comes to mind is honestly me with my first kid. <laughs> like I was just so terrified of these tantrums, um, you know, happening in public that I would just give her whatever the heck she wanted. I'd buy her a bag of popcorn when we got to Target and turn my phone on so she could watch YouTube. And I would put toys that she would randomly select while we were in Target um, into the cart. Is that sustainable? Absolutely not. Is it good for her? No. Um, but it's, it is what it is. She survived. I survived. I've got three more kids. Um, anyways, just very, you know, it's, it's pretty self-explanatory, um, the permissive style. And now the other styles, um, so neglectful. So that type of parent is also self-explanatory. Um, and the example that comes to mind for me is that character Frank from the show Shameless, if you haven't seen it. It's 
it's good. It's kind of hard to watch. It's um, just because the family is very dysfunctional and you just, or at least for me, it broke my heart just to see this family try and survive the dad's alcoholism and, and whatnot. But anyways, so basically he's an alcoholic father who can barely, who's barely ever present. And when he is present, he's just so toxic that it causes even more issues with the kids um, than when he isn't around. So that would be an example of neglectful parenting. Um, authoritarian. Now this style of parenting is incredibly demanding and rarely responds to the child's needs with compassion. An example of this type of parent um, that comes to mind is how, you know how they say like the preacher's daughters always grow up to be absolutely wild. And basically the premise of that wives tale or fable or whatever you want to call it is that, you know, preacher's daughters grow up under such strict rules that by the time they turn 18, they just run wild because they've been so oppressed for so many years um, and have had such little decision-making power. Um, So that's what I think of when I think of authoritarian parent. Now, authoritative parenting, that's the style, like I said, that I refer to as compassionate parenting. And this type of parent is the most responsive to their child's needs, but they also have high expectations and clear boundaries for their children. So, and like I mentioned, this um, style of parenting is grounded in principles of compassion, which is, again, is why we refer to it as compassionate parenting. Now, uh, what I've noticed since I first began identifying my food noises rugrats that require compassionate parenting in order to be tamed is that most of us actually respond to our rugrats in one of two ways. And that's either the way we were parented as children or the exact opposite of ways of the way we were parented as kids. Um, so, for example, I grew up in a very authoritative household where I wasn't able to wear makeup or paint my nails or listen to the radio or watch TV. It was very strict. Um, and so thus it was very natural for me to respond to my internal food noise by setting incredibly strict dietary rules in order to control the noise. Um, I also responded very harshly when I failed to follow any of my dietary rules. For example, I ate, if I ate more calories one day than I had planned, I would make myself pay for it the next day by restricting calories even more. So I was also incredibly critical of myself when I felt like I had messed up my diet and I felt an enormous amount of shame for feeling like I couldn't control my rugrats the way that I should. So anyways, like I said, I've noticed that most people either respond to their rugrats either in the same manner they were parented as children or the exact opposite of the way they were parented. So I would encourage you to kind of go back and think about the way you're parented. Think about those four parenting styles. You can literally just Google it. and I can actually have Kelsey put a little chart in the show notes um, that that shows a little diagram of the four types of parenting and just noticing um, how you were parented and trying to figure out is that the way that you respond to that internal food noise, those rugrats, it can be very helpful and very insightful in, um, in how you respond to them in the future. So now if, if we go on to the authoritative parenting, which like I said, I call compassionate parenting. And as I've already mentioned, I feel is the most effective in taming your internal rugrats or food noise. Now let's, let's go through a scenario. So say you're attending a friend's birthday party and the party is being held at her house and there's tons of your favorite foods on the buffet and the cake looks absolutely amazing. And So just think about like what your rugrats might be telling you as you gaze over the tempting buffet. 
Um, and some examples of what mine might be telling me is you're going to ruin your entire day at this party with all of these options. Um, people are going to see you stuff your face. You need to fill your plate when no one is watching so no one knows just how much food you can eat. Eat all the salty stuff first so you can binge on the cake later and make sure you have tons of water so you can get that amazing pop of taste every time you eat a batty cake. They might also tell me to put a couple of cookies in my pocket to eat in the bathroom or later after I leave the party because um, I can't possibly let anybody see me eat cookies after they've already seen me eat cake. And plus, those cookies go really great with that ice cream that I have in the freezer, um, that kind of thing. <clears throat> so those are obviously just a few examples of what we all know internal food noise can can look like. Um, and that's just an example in like a three-minute time period, right? Like as soon as I get to this person's birthday party. Um, <clears throat> the point is that these rugrats are so annoying and they barely give you time to enjoy the party, right? Because you're so consumed with responding to thoughts about food that you can't even be present with the friend on her special day. Um, now, if we, you know, like, like we had just talked about those four styles of parenting, um, if you think about those four styles of parenting and how they would respond to those food thoughts that I just went over, now the permissive parent would probably um, just give in to the, the thoughts right away, like hide the cookies, eat all the cake, you know, that kind of thing. And the neglectful parent would probably try to ignore all the food noise because ne neglecting um, is just choosing to to not be present with whatever is is there. And so what would the food noise do in response to a neglectful person or someone who's neglecting them? Well, they're either going to get so loud um, that you have no choice but to, to seat them and do something about them, or they'll just shut up completely and you lose the inability to eat intuitively, right? Because food noise isn't all bad. Like you need, you need to have some thoughts about food when you're hungry. You need to be able to, you know, internally ask yourself, what do I need right now? Is it water? Is it something salty because I'm a little dehydrated? Um, so that's my take on, you know, neglectful parenting in response to food noise or rugrats. And <clears throat> the authoritarian style, um, remember that's like the overly strict one, right? So they might respond to those examples of food noise or rugrats by just being really strict and like, you know, absolutely not. We're not eating any food while we're here. We can't possibly let anybody see us eat at all. Um, nobody can know that we have this issue. And what's the consequence of parenting the rugrats or responding to those that food noise in the authoritarian way? Well, you can, that that can only last for so long. You can't restrict yourself from food so much. Um, something that Janine Roth always says. She's one of my, um, I would say mentor, but I feel like that would indicate that we have or imply that we have like a personal relationship, and we don't. But she was. I've read almost all of her books because she's just been very instrumental in helping me get through my eating um, disorders. So Janine Roth, she's an amazing um, author, very inspiring. And she always says that for every diet, there's an equal and opposite binge. And I completely agree. 
So in responding to the Rugrats in the authoritarian way and being like overly strict with them, you're only going to make them worse. They're only going to respond by doing the complete opposite of what you want them to do. And that would be to go buck wild when, as soon as you get home, like eat this, eat that, eat it all. Like you, you've been so restrictive. You need to eat everything and anything and everything. And then the authoritative way, now that is the compassionate parenting, remember? So the authoritative way to respond to that noise um, would be to try to understand what it's telling you. Try to understand, like get on the Rugrats level, just like you would a toddler, and try to understand what it's telling you, right? So now before I go into that a little bit further, I would like to talk about what compassionate parenting like why I call authoritative parenting compassionate and um to understand that you need to kind of understand the definition of compassion right so compassion is the act of empathizing with someone's suffering followed by the desire to alleviate it so even if you can't do anything about that person's suffering that you're empathizing with you believe deep down that if there was something you could do you absolutely would so um with authoritative parenting you're you're solving problems with the child, not for them or in spite of them in an attempt to alleviate suffering, right? You're setting clear boundaries with the child and clear expectations, essentially alleviating suffering, right? Because if somebody doesn't know what they're expected to do and then they get in trouble for doing it or not doing it, they're going to suffer the consequence of that, but it's not really fair to them because they didn't know in the first place, right? I hope I'm making sense and not just like talking in circles. This makes a lot of sense in my head. Um, So I I really do hope it resonates with someone else who hears it. So the other thing that's so compassionate about the authoritative parent is that they give natural consequences for wrongdoings. So, and this means like, you know, if a child throws a toy, um, they're going to just take the toy away. They're not going to be like, no TV for 15 weeks. That's not a natural consequence of throwing a toy. Taking away a toy is the natural consequence of throwing a toy. Um, and so what that looks like as far as food goes is say that I – let me give you a real-life example. I used to binge on Nella wafers. <laughs> I don't know why, but it was a favorite binge food. I would literally go through three boxes at a time, three whole entire boxes, right? And, um, the natural consequence of that would be, I I just had to make a rule. I don't bring Nilla wafers in the house. (laughs) That's a natural consequence versus, um, like an authoritarian parent might say, if you, if you binge on Nilla wafers, um, you can never, ever, ever eat Nilla wafers again. And in fact, we're going on a sugar-free diet, no sugar for the rest of your life. Does that make sense? I hope so. Um, So basically, there's four steps to the compassionate parenting way of dealing with your rugrats. The first one is to listen and identify needs of the rugrats. The second is to compassionately validate the feelings. The third is to set clear boundaries. And the fourth is to follow through with those natural consequences. Now, as far as listening and identifying needs, um, you know, I'm, uh, if you haven't uh, realized it already, I'm kind of a fan of high school level psychology, right? Um, and I'm sure everybody's seen that uh, Maslow's um, hierarchy of needs diagram. It's like a triangle. And at the bottom of the triangle, there 
um, it's physiologic needs. Above that is safety needs. Above that is love and belonging. Above that is esteem. And then above that is self-actualization. And according to this psychologist, Abraham Maslow, needs on the bottom of that triangle need to be met first or have to be met first in order for a person to move on to um, needs at the top of the triangle, right? So physiologic needs like food and sleep are more important before self-actualization, which is being the best human you can possibly be. Like nobody cares that they are able to give $3 million to charity if um, if they're not getting any sleep. If they get two hours of sleep every night, then giving $3 million to charity is not on their to-do list, right? They need to focus on physiologic needs first. So, um, and I'm not going to go over all of these in the podcast. If you want to go over all of these, feel free to take my free course. Um, you can go to www.magnitudewellness.com and I'll be posting the free course, like I said, sometime this week, probably Friday, um, which would be July 7th, 2023. But well, what we what I do want to go over is the first one to listen and identify the needs. Now, like I said, using Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, you need to ask yourself what is it that these rugrats are saying that's go- that will help me identify what they need. Now, if we go back to that example of being at the party, what could you identify about the rugrats about what the rugrats need? Well. You know, the Rugrats in that scenario were doing two things. They're taunting uh, us with like fear of judgment of, of others. We don't want to be seen eating or overeating and that kind of thing. And then also um, they're taunting us with the, with the desire to indulge. Now, as far as fear of judgment, that goes in that like that esteem category, right? Of the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And and basically the rugrats just need to feel like a normal part of a group and they don't want to be judged. Like nobody wants to be judged. We want to fit in. Why is that important? Well, it's important for the human race. Like in order for us to progress and evolve, we need to have community around us, right? We can't survive completely on our own. Um, so it makes sense that those thoughts of fear of judgment are the need to to feel like you're part of something. So if you're not feeling like you're part of something and those are the thoughts your rugrats are telling you, then you can do something about that. You can go to an OA meeting. You can tell a friend what you're going through. You can, you know, develop that community that you so need in order to take control of your relationship with food. And then the second kind of category to, to define what those rugrats are were needing in that scenario where we went to the friend's party and saw all that food is that they are trying to get you to indulge in food. Now, what could that possibly mean? Like what could they need if that's what they're doing? So if we think about what our rugrats need that are leading them to tell us to indulge, we can ask ourselves this one question and that is, am I feeling deprived somewhere? Because what's the opposite of deprivation? It's indulgence, right? So if I were to ask myself that question at that scenario where I'm at the party and there's tons of food and that kind of thing, 
I, I mean, I would say like, am I deprived somewhere? Am I deprived of a physiologic need? Like maybe I'm deprived of sleep or of food because I've been over restricting or of physical touch or of community. Like where am I deprived? And so that will help me address the actual issue that is the root cause of me having this exhausting internal food noise that's telling me to overindulge. Now, like I said, there are four steps in the compassionate parenting process. That was the first one, to listen and identify the needs. The second step would be to empathize and validate the feelings of those rugrats. So say, for example, I was validating the feeling that I'm of deprivation, like say I'm feeling deprived of sleep, to really just sit down with myself and give myself some compassion and say, wow, you've been working really hard. You know, like it's hard to function without sleep. And so that's, you know, the validation piece. And then the next part would be to set clear boundaries. So what I might do is say, I have got to go to bed by 10 p.m. every single night because this food noise, these rugrats, they're getting out of control because they are not getting exactly what they need. And then that last step that I had mentioned as far as compassionate parenting goes is to follow through with natural consequences. So say I am not putting myself to bed by 10 p.m. every night. What would be a natural consequence of that? Well, I would need to maybe... Uh, shorten my nighttime routine. Either I need to skip my 30 minutes of TV or maybe I need to change my morning routine so that it includes when, when I take my shower and get get ready for the day, that kind of thing, instead of doing it the night before. Either way, something's got to change so that I can get the amount of sleep that I need so that I can keep my food noise or rugrats under control. So those are all the steps um, that I think are important for comp- passionate parenting. And again, they are to listen and identify needs, empathize and validate feelings, set clear boundaries, and follow through with natural consequences. And again, I know this approach to quieting food noise isn't probably very conventional. Um, And it honestly is a little easier when you see like the diagrams and charts that I have um, when I explain this. So if for some reason you're listening to this and you're like, that doesn't make a ton of sense, but she might be onto something, I highly encourage you to check out my free course on my website. Um, And I'll have Kelsey link it in the show notes for today. But I, I have found this to be so helpful when I feel overwhelmed with food noise. And so I just wanted to share it with other people. If this is something that you think might be helpful for you, might resonate with you, then just try it out. It doesn't take very much time at all. Um, you can print off the slides from my website and just see if, if this is something that could help you. So hopefully this has been helpful for somebody today. Thank you guys again so much for listening and I will see you next time.